the leader has a responsibility to inspire and empower others to be part of the leadership process. Students at this point, I believe, need to get comfortable being in front of a microphone and, and sitting in front of a camera. Everybody's a leader and, and we want our classroom teachers to be able to differentiate for students. So why not ask that of our school leaders with teachers? Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. And the first thing I'd like to do today is apologize for the quality of the audio of this podcast. As some of you may know, we left Saudi Arabia in June. And after a couple of months in the UK, we finally made it to Thailand in September which means that my mic and my equipment are somewhere on a boat on the Indian Ocean and hopefully will make their way to our home very shortly. My guest today is Dr. Dan Krinas. Dan is one of the most successful podcasters out there in the world of education podcast with the Leader of Learning podcast. He also has a blog, leaderoflearning.com, and I was particularly interested in talking to Dan because his research revolves around changing schools, changing culture, specifically how we move people who might be at different stages in their career, different stages in their uh, appetite for risk. And specifically, his podcast has a major theme of trying to empower everybody within the school to be a leader, saying that anyone, regardless of where you are in the organization, in the school itself, from student to administrator, can be a leader. The guests on the show bring some thought-provoking insights into leadership, into education and pedagogy, and I really hope that you will find as much pleasure and thinking in this conversation as I did. So without further ado, here's Dr. Dan Krinas. Well, hi, Dan. Thanks so much for uh, coming on, on uh, our show, Meaningful Learning Podcast. Um, I'm uh, really excited. I've been a longtime listener of your own podcast, uh, The Leader of Learning, and um, you always have great guests and great insights um, that tackle different ways that leaders approach learning, approach schools, uh, and um, and uh, innovation and, and and curriculum, but really, what I'd like to do is uh, is talk to you about a couple of things that are near and dear to your heart. I understand, but first of all, just wanted to ask you, who are you? What do you do? And uh, how do you try to make a difference in education? Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, we made it happen despite being in uh, in different parts of the world and in different, much different time zones. Uh, so thank you. But I'm Dr. Dan Krinas. Uh, by day, I'm an instructional coach at the middle school level, uh, and I support the English language arts department at my middle school in Connecticut here in the United States. And uh, and by night, I am uh, an educational podcaster. I have a podcast called The Leader of Learning uh, and, and now a new monthly series on Leader of Learning called Devil's Advocate. And, um, you know, just, just being a, a connected educator. And I think that that part of what I do um, is where I really get to shine. Not that, not that I don't take my day job seriously, but, uh, you know, being a connected educator and being a podcaster um, and getting out there in the world of education has allowed me to, um, you know, to really try and inspire educators across the country and I, I guess even around the world. Um, and, and really the way that I come at that and, and the way that I brand my, myself and, and certainly my podcast is that we can transform education through effective leadership and that that leadership should 
come from anyone, regardless of what role they're in or what title they have, um, that, that no matter who you are or where you are, and this is how I end every single episode of my podcast, no matter who you are or where you are, you too can be a leader of learning. And, and I just want people to realize that about themselves, that, uh, that no matter who they are, they can make, make that kind of an impact themselves. So I want to go into this and ask what your view of leadership is, how that would work. But before this, um, we do something on the show where we ask the same question to every uh, person we talk to, and that is, what does learning mean to you? What is learning, your definition? You know, I think at a surface level, learning is the acquisition of new knowledge, you know, new knowledge that you, you never had before. I think, though, what makes learning unique and, and what may make people's definition of it differ is is how learning comes about. Um, you know, before we hit record here, you said something that I think is really pertinent about how schools have become very institutionalized, or at least American schools. And, and I think part of that is that educators and the education system still uh, in a lot of ways think that students learn best when information is just given to them by the quote unquote experts in the classroom, which in our, in our education system is unfortunately still usually the teacher. Uh, but I think that what we're realizing and hoping for is that education will come around one day to realize that the students themselves should be treated and, and viewed as more of the experts themselves. And, and um, you know, part of that means uh, allowing them to be more a part of that teaching and learning process and, and of course, I, I don't think I can answer the question, what is learning without emphasizing that um, some of the best learning comes through failure and comes through making mistakes. And, um, you, you know, I think that term productive struggle is important, whether you're a student or not. Uh, if you're just a student of life, even, you know, unfortunately, going through some challenging times uh, can can actually be a blessing in disguise and you can come out on the other side of it having learned a tremendous amount about yourself and about the situ situation you were in. Uh, so that's a really long-winded answer, but I think so much of that goes into what learning really is. And, and it's a complex problem. And I think, I think that one of the things that I've noticed talking to educators going around schools is that um, there is oftentimes a lack of shared understanding of what learning is. And this is something that Will Richardson on his podcast talks about quite a bit. And I guess this brings me up to my next question is, and, and you talked a little bit about leadership and everybody can, can be a leader, but how can leaders at any level in the organization and, and even perhaps kids, because you're, you're implying that they can be leaders as well, certainly. How can leaders, wherever they are, help the school or the community even understand or have a shared understanding of what learning is? How can we bring that all together? I honestly think um, you, you almost said the answer I was thinking right there, which is to actually highlight and emphasize the students as leaders, uh, almost first and foremost. Um, you know, and I, and I think that uh, it it's easy to say, harder to do, that, that leaders really need to distribute their leadership um, across the organization and across stakeholders, uh, um, you know, who, who, have, who are vested in the organization as well. Um, no, nobody can do it alone, you know, and, and um, 
And again, that, that's where I think sometimes teachers make the mistake too. They, they feel such pressure uh, and, and some of them feel the, like the weight of the world is on their shoulders. And, and I think a lot of that gets back to like a control thing. So whether you're a classroom teacher or, or you're a school leader or a district leader, um, thinking that you have the weight of the world on your shoulders and that you have to do more than everybody else. And, and it's the wrong way to go about it, really. And, and uh, truly to be successful. And, and this is a lot of what I found, uh, you know, throughout the years. And, and as I was researching, um, is, is really that idea of shared leadership and distributing leadership. Um, some call it servant leadership. I like to, to take the angle of like a transformational leadership where uh, the leader is really inspiring and empowering their quote unquote followers to be more a, 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 pro, a part of the process. Um, but I really think that's as cliche as that might sound, as simple as that might sound, it, it's not, it's not easy. Um, and, and it's especially not easy for those kind of leaders who really, I'm just going to say it, they, they want to be in control that the, the power has sort of gotten to them in such a way where they just feel like they're the ones who, who need to lead and, and they don't let anyone else in. So maybe we could take a step back a little bit because transformational leadership, it's, it's been the, the, really the, largely the crux of a lot of your research. And sometimes when we're so immersed in our research, we kind of live it. But maybe you can give your own view of what that means. What does that look like in practice? That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked. You know, I'm not going to get all textbook here. What I will say is that um, I think some people, when they hear transformation and, and therefore they think about transformational leadership, they think about maybe a struggling school or a struggling organization where a new leader or a new team, leadership team comes in and they have to, you know, basically write the ship and and change things like from the ground up and and really revamp and retool and that's not really it i mean certainly it could be a situation where a, a turnaround a change needs to happen and, and probably needs to happen quickly uh but really at the end of the day what transformational leadership boils down to <coughs> excuse me is the idea that the leader and this goes back to servant leadership as well, but that the leader has a responsibility to inspire and empower others to be part of the leadership process. And, and that they do that by tapping into the individual strengths and weaknesses and interests and abilities of everyone in the organization. And, uh, you know, again, that, that's kind of boiling it down and, and putting it in my own words, but I think that's a really good kind of layman's way of, of putting it that the leader is the leader only in so far as they can kind of rally the troops and get everyone to understand what role they play in, in getting the entire organization to move forward. What about in situations, and this is going to happen across schools, where there are different parties within say the, the community some are like yeah you know we're early adopters we believe it we're going to move and others simply won't move at all look i'm a couple years to retirement i've been teaching 40 years you're not going to teach me any new tricks how does a transformational leader manage these different people and then there's those in the middle 
I think it starts by understanding who they are and how they think. And I, I actually pulled up here because I had a feeling that our conversation was going to go this way, and I'm glad it did. Uh, I pulled up a blog post that I wrote a while back, and, and I turned it into a, a podcast episode as well. But I wanted to make sure I get the terms right. Uh, there was a, a researcher named Huberman who in 1998, uh, 1988 uh, threw out some, some terms here about resistance and, and why teachers are resistance. And then another researcher, Hargreaves, in 2005 kind of expanded on it. And so here are some terms. Uh, there's a term called positive focusers. And when you hear the word positive, you're like, oh, great. Those are the people who are really gung-ho about change and they're going to they're gonna be those early adopters or they're going to adapt well to change. But the reason it's called positive focusers is that these people will accept change, but predominantly within the confines of their own classroom. Uh, in their wisdom and later in life, these positive focusers conserve their energy while focusing upon the students who cross their threshold every day. So in other words, uh, my, my take on that is that these are people who may or may not change. They might talk a big game, but at the end of the day, and, and we've seen this in education, it's unfortunate, but it, it's a sad reality that some people prefer just to close their classroom doors and they're confined to the four walls of their own little room with their students and, and that's it. Um, these people I have found in my career and my experience are the ones who are reluctant to share uh, their own you know, resources and experiences with others. Um, basically, they're, they're really not a team player. There is another term uh, and, and another reason why teachers resist change. It's called the disenchant. Uh, disenchanted later career teacher, right? And these are those who have invested themselves in several school reform efforts only to be let down. And, and I think this might've been what you were getting at a little bit earlier too, where uh, you're more veteran teachers who have been around the block a few times. I have them, you know, I work with them too. And, and I'm an instructional coach and that's my job is to help support some of these people. And sometimes I hear the same thing, like, yeah, you know, this is just the new the new trend and our district tries something new every two or three years and this is going to go, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. Is that, I think that's the term. Uh, so basically, in other words, like we've, we've tried it before and we'll try something else again. It'll come down the pike in a couple of years. So lots of skepticism and cynicism. And, uh, and finally, you have... I guess the opposite of the positive focuser, you have the negative focuser. Uh, and again, it, it points to more, the more veteran teacher. And these are people who actually work toward uh, undermining change. So these are your more outspoken individuals who are adamant uh, about not changing for whatever reason. And I'm just going to, this is my own opinion. I did not really, this did not come up in my own research and, and it didn't in theirs either. But it, I think these are people who are just super stuck in their own comfort zone and they just can't find a way out of it. And it's again, a sad reality. Um, but negative focusers will also uh, use their political power to, to keep their life easy. And unfortunately, a lot of times that makes other people's lives harder. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, there are, there certainly are those teachers who are out there that you really need to, uh, to, to break down and break through in order to make change happen. Uh, like I said, I think the, the first step is 
understanding that that's a reality and identifying those those people um, and, and hopefully understanding why they might be resistant or they they are reluctant to implement change, implement new practices and start from there. So you can really tap into um, something that's going to get them to, to change for the better. And I guess this brings up the question of pace and pace of change, because if there are different communities and different influencers, certain things can be used um, or, or implemented with, with certain parties at different times. And, and I guess the question is, um, you know, there, there's two strategies. Either you do a school-wide effort, and that may or may not work. It's either too quick, too slow, not the right pace. It's the it's, uh, same for all. Or you work at different, different speeds for different, different parties. What, what are your feelings on that? And, and how could these transformational leaders be most effective at implementing change? I'm okay with with going at slower paces and and different different paces. Uh, again, leaders in the classroom, leaders of a school building, of a district, everybody's a leader, and and we want our classroom teachers to be able to differentiate for students. So why not ask that of our school leaders with teachers? You mentioned the term early adopters before. Absolutely, grab those people who are gung ho about change, who tend to be the younger staff members, uh, maybe kind of straight out of their teacher prep programs and uh, have newer knowledge about newer techniques. Yeah, I mean, grab those. One of the things that I have strived to do throughout my career as an instructional coach is to, uh, and, and this has been done now in I guess three different schools that I've worked at, is to try and create systems where teachers can observe each other in, of course, a non-evaluative fashion, but where they can just learn from each other. You know, I, I approach it in a way that I think makes teachers feel more comfortable about it. I say, you know, look, I have been so fortunate, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to, to be in positions where I get to go, I have the privilege of going into many teachers' classrooms and watching how they teach. And some are doing such a good job. I want everyone to see what I'm able to see. And I want everyone to learn. You know, I, I've been able to learn so much throughout my career because I'm not in my own classroom all the time. So I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have the luxury even of just shutting my classroom doors and saying, that's it. I'm just focusing on me and my students. Um, it's been great to be able to travel from classroom to classroom and, and get ideas from everybody. And so uh, I, I think that's a really big part of having those early adopters, um, having other people who are a little bit late to the party, watch them. Um, you know, it's that, that modeling, right? Like direct instruction is a thing. And, and as much uh, new school techniques that we want to bring to the table in the classroom, you still need to show students how to do most of the things you're, you're trying to get them to do. I think it's the same with teachers. You know, you might have a few teachers who are really risk takers and they're just going to try something because they heard about it. They think it's cool. They think their students are going to love it and they just dive right in. I'm kind of that way. I was that way in the classroom too, especially with technology, but not everyone is like that. And that's fine. But if you have people who are, definitely take advantage of that. When, when you have implemented these programs, what has been the most effective way to get teachers to leave their classroom and to take the risk of even going to observe somebody else 
And what are things that you have found to be impediments or obstacles and how have you maybe uh, tackled those? I think like so many things, the biggest impediment is, is usually time. Just getting the time to step out, you know, usually, um, unless we're, we're paying substitutes and getting coverages uh, in situations like that, where, where we're trying to get teachers to, to visit each other and observe each other. It's really not possible unless you're taking teachers around during their prep periods or lunch periods. Uh, and, and that's difficult to, you know, to ask them to do. Um, I don't do it that often for that reason, but, um, again, I, I, I might be oversimplifying it, but, but a lot of it is the way that it's sold to teachers. And, and I've been pretty successful at selling stuff like that by just saying like, man, I'm learning so much because I'm able to see and hear from all these educators. You know, I'm, I'm a well-connected educator um, on social media and, and with my podcast. And so I'm learning from educators across the globe, literally. Um, but a lot of the teachers that I work with and that I support every single day, they don't do that. They don't have that. And so they at least have each other. Uh, and although it's a, a fairly small department in the school that I'm working with now, uh, it's still really powerful, no matter how many people it is. And, and I think as long as I'm able to get that across, it's, it's been pretty successful, like I said. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I, I think deep down teachers are they're willing to have people come and watch them, especially knowing that it's not evaluative. Um, they're not super vulnerable usually, but a, a lot of them are okay with having others visit their, their rooms. Um, it's just a matter of, of finding the time to do it. And for the teacher who's, who's in the classroom being watched, so to speak, uh, you know, to be able to, to prepare for that. And what about the role of students? How can we set up structures as transformational leaders to make sure, not even structures, but even cultures, processes, anything, opportunities to get students to lead the way? You know, I, I think um, in American society right now, and, and I can't really speak for other parts of the world, but I think that we're, we're in a place right now societally uh, with the pandemic, with our political system, with um, social justice issues. I think that that right now is a great time to, to tap into students in terms of uh, getting their thoughts and opinions, getting them to, to not just be consumers of the information, but to actually start speaking up and, and becoming activists and, and just getting involved in, in changing and, and helping to shape the future of whatever issue they, they are passionate about. And, um, you know, finding ways to get students, it could be something as simple as like starting a student council or, or using your student council to, to help some of this work. Um, buddy systems and, and tutoring things are, are really great too, but definitely finding ways for, for students to step up. Um, I have a good friend who started 
started in the same district at the same time as me last year, and and he brought to his school a um, a podcasting and, and broadcasting curriculum that no one had ever seen before, and that was a really cool way to get students more involved and stepping up to do the school announcements, and uh, and and they kind of ran it almost like a television station. So there are so many ways you could take it. You know, you could you could have students literally step up as leaders and, and, you know, fight the power, so to speak. Um, but you can have students, you know, start a podcast or, uh, you know, it it could be anything, uh, a YouTube channel, you know, stuff like that. What would you tell teachers though, who feel that they have to go through, um, a, a massive curriculum that's been imposed by textbook or by their curriculum leader somewhere in another building and they feel the pressure of going through a textbook that might be 900 pages long, and they feel the pressure of having to go through all the content and material, and they say, well, I don't have time to give students choice and voice. Yeah, I mean, again, there's that that T word, the time thing. Um, you know, I get it. I, I think that as much as possible, uh, I love for teachers to go deeper rather than broader in terms of how much they cover and, and, and go deeper in, in terms of really, you know, drilling down. But um, I think what works best, and again, I'll, I'll go back to the differentiation piece. Um, a couple of years ago, I was actually put back in the classroom for a few months. And one of the things that I was excited to try with my own students for the first time was uh, an idea called layered curriculum. And, and I think that that helped me and my students with this problem that you're referring to. Um, and basically, layered curriculum is a tiered structure that has students go through lower level activities, then intermediate, and then more advanced activities activities. And what you will find, and it's almost a guarantee, of course, is that students, some students may just kind of stay at that low, at those low level activities because it takes them longer to get through or, or they just haven't gotten the skills yet to be able to advance. Some students will go up a little bit further and some students who are well-equipped uh, to, to handle the, the content and the activities will go all the way through the, the higher level stuff. And uh, I found that to be a really great way of, of getting through curriculum that way because I could differentiate, I could, um, I could more individualize for students to go at the pace they needed to go. Um, I, I, I'm finding it difficult to answer your question because I don't know that there's really like a right or wrong. I mean, it's wrong, I think, to say as a teacher, I just have to plow through this and I can't slow down, right? And, and that's because that's dangerous uh, because then you're expecting students to keep up at your pace and chances are they're going to miss stuff. You know, that's why uh, formative assessment is so, is so crucial where you're really stopping at certain points, hopefully, <clears throat> hopefully almost every day to be able to see did my kids learn what they were supposed to learn? If not, do I have to go back and reteach like everyone? Can I just kind of supplement with, with a few students and then they can catch up quicker? So um, it's a difficult question to answer, but I think those are some ways that, that teachers can at least try and, um, try and get students to keep up as best they can. And before we press record, you were talking about how states were taking away some of the standardized tests. 
and how at least for last year maybe next year that might present opportunities as well to be less uh, um, restricted by the curriculum needs should i say I hope so. And you were saying before we hit record too that that one of the things you've noticed over the years, especially, is is um, the gap. I'm going to call it in terms of where we're at in society and how schools are still trying to prepare students for it, and and they don't seem to jive. <clears throat> and what I mean is. Uh, I still don't know that our schools are doing a good enough job at really preparing students for the world that's going to be ahead of them whenever they leave the education system and enter the, the working world. Um, I, I think getting rid of standardized testing will help because then I don't think people will be locked so much into, I have to teach all this material and pace myself according to this curriculum map that I have. And it'll be a little bit, hopefully, or maybe a lot uh, more focused on these are the real critical skills my students are going to need. And, and here's how, here's what kind of experiences I want to bring into the classroom to hopefully get them there. You know, I actually had a conversation earlier today. Uh, we were actually talking a lot about podcasting. And I said, students at this point, I believe, need to get comfortable being in front of a microphone and, and sitting in front of a camera. And, and I don't mean like doing distance learning. I mean that the, I think it's the World Economic Forum. Uh, every so often they put out these new, uh, this new list, like a top 10 list of these are the skills that students are going to need in the future. And one of those is social influence. Uh, I don't know exactly what number it is, but it's high on the list. And, <clears throat> and because of that, I, I do think that uh, we need to present information differently to students at this at this point. Um, but what we expect back from them, what what we expect the students to do, needs to be different. Um, if, if we want students to keep, you know, writing essay after essay in our in our uh, English classes, literally, you know, um, like language arts classes. And if we want students to just uh, forget about the fact that they can easily look something up or ask Google or, or Alexa or something like that, um, you know, we're, we're past that point. And, and I'm really with you on this. And it's a, it's a point that's very important to me uh, because my, I've got a background as a historian and nobody writes more dry, boring texts than historians. I love it. Don't get me wrong, but but um, it's it's not what students get really excited about that five paragraph essay that they've been doing for the last seven years and it looks the same. What, but what I've been lucky enough to do before being in education was work in the private sector and uh, across industries uh, in, in consulting. Last year, I had the chance also to work with a lot of uh, of uh, high tech companies, emerging high tech companies in in Saudi Arabia. Great experience. And the one thing that I know is that. Um, when you are not in school and you write anything, it better be a page or shorter. Slides are the way things are communicated. Emails better be five sentences long. Nobody reads long emails. So one of the things that you bring up the word influence, to me, we have to think about why are we writing? Why are we speaking? Why are we on podcast? It is for influence. And so why is so much of the school emphasizing Paragraph structure, language, have you done your research, which is important, 
But ultimately, what is the goal? It is to influence. And that can be done in so many different ways. And, and, and I'm really hoping that educators, schools, people realize that, like you said, social influence, whatever it might be, different ways, one bullet point. Yeah, and, and again, uh, that's, that's a big change in education, or it needs to be a big change in education. And, and I don't think that it can happen overnight. You asked before about uh, the pace, you know, the, the pace of change. Like, can't expect stuff to change overnight. Uh, I want to be realistic in that regard. But uh, going back to some of the th- ideas that I've, that I've thrown out there already, starting small, um, you know, don't ask your students to just write paper after paper. If you're, you know, an ELA teacher or a history teacher, get them to do a podcast, get them to create a video. Um, a, pre- a presentation is great as long as they understand how to how to make it a good one. I mean, uh, you know, I, I literally took a class, a doctoral level class on, uh, I forget exactly what it's called, but basically presenting information, right? And how to make impactful presentations. And of course, when I uh, defended my own research, you know, very little text on the page, use some charts and graphs and, and, you know, images and things to, to get your point across. But yeah, I think, I think starting small with, with project ideas, uh, but, but ultimately what I think is going to make the difference, and this gets back to your question too, about standardized tests, it's got to be authentic. We've been saying that for a while now, you know, we're in the year 2020. So we're 20 years into the 21st century. And, and so 21st century learning should have been happening already. And, and if it's not this, that this is the big one for me, uh, authentic learning and, and especially authentic assessment. Uh, it's got to be more prominent in classrooms and in schools and really across the education system if you want to take a, a more macro approach to, lo- to looking at it. Um, you know, gone should be the times of, like you said, students ha- having teachers cram down their throats about text structures and paragraph structures and things like that and get them to blog or podcast. Uh, I worked with a really great ELA teacher uh, a couple years ago now who had her students blogging and, and um, understanding media literacy and, and understanding digital literacy and what it means to be a, a productive digital citizen. And I got to be honest, I even questioned at first, like, wow, that, that seems like quite a departure from what we've always been taught and, and how we've always taught. But, you know, now if, a few years later, I'm like, man, that was, that was kind of cutting edge. Uh, or was it? I don't know. Maybe it should have been happening already. But uh, I really think things like that are, are now the way we need to head in terms of preparing students for the future. So let's be practical. I'm a teacher. I'm listening to this podcast. I'm thinking, yeah, you know, blogging sounds like a really good idea, but, but isn't that just putting up their papers online? Like how can I get around? How can I get to know how to do it, why to do it? And uh, what's the most effective? What, what are your strategies or what are places people can go? Again, I think that's a good opportunity to let students lead. Um, but you know, I, I, blogging, for example, um, or podcasting or, or creating a YouTube channel for, for the love of God, like people, kids these days, they just want to be YouTubers, right? Um, it, you know, teaching them about who's your audience, 
what is your, I'm, I'm using air quotes, which you can't see in the podcasting land, the audio only, but what is your brand, right? Like what, what do you stand for? What is your message that you want to get across? How are you going to deliver it? Um, you know, it, it, a podcast interview like this. Uh, now on my show, I like to keep the conversation really conversational and I tend not to plan out too many questions. And I think you've already gone off the script quite a bit, not no offense, um, but planning, you know, what, what are you going to talk about? What, you know, so I, I think some of that is still grounded in how teachers would traditionally teach kids to write and to get their message across, but in an old school way. And now in more of a new school year 2020 kind of way, it's, hey, look at, look, let's actually explore some of the most popular, some of the most famous, some of the richest YouTubers who are out there. What do they do? Because they don't just slap together a video and throw it up there and call it a day and make millions of dollars. You might think they do, but I know that they don't, or at least that's not how they got started. Because uh, I believe that unless you're already famous, uh, becoming famous on YouTube, it takes a lot of a lot of work and a lot of planning and preparation, like teaching uh, or or like almost anything you ask your students to do. Where, inst- again, like instead of uh, you know writing that outline to write that essay to just keep putting pen to paper, uh, let's get creative about it and and let's make that outline become a script or or an interview you know interview uh, Q and A questions you want to ask or something that leads to again a more authentic assessment a more authentic project right that that's. In, 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 in some way, shape, or form, that's project-based learning right there. It's really funny you say that about the YouTubers because uh, my, my son is uh, just turned 14 and he loves Minecraft. I mean, wow, you know, what a surprise. Um, but one of the things that, that he does is watch other people do Minecraft on YouTube. And, and at first I thought, this is just so weird. Why would you watch somebody else play video games? I mean, what is going on? But I sat with him and I listened to it and I got to say, the way they constructed the story, the voices, the the tone, the jokes, the exper- the experience was mesmerizing for me. Who who doesn't know? You know, like I don't play Minecraft. I understand it, but I, I don't I don't play it. And and it was cultivated. It there was an art to it for sure. It wasn't just a guy recording himself. And and all these things, it, it's about teaching the kids, you know, how to appeal not just to the brain, which is what a lot of these essays do, but also to the heart. People buy stuff because they're emotionally connected to it. Um, so I think that's that's a fascinating point that you that you bring on about about deconstructing some of the things that they love, rather than necessarily than deconstructing what you know the curriculum says that they should love. I watched. This is pretty timely. I'm going to try and find it right now while we're talking. But I watched a YouTube video myself uh, today or yesterday by someone who has now gotten a pretty popular YouTube channel. Uh, She's able to to monetize, which I don't want to get too into YouTube, but like you need a thousand subscribers to your channel and a certain amount of hours that people watch your videos to be able to, uh, to actually start making money and and advertising. Um, 
And I watched someone do a video on how they got to that point. In other words, like what kind of work actually went into not just making a lot of videos, but making good quality videos that people will actually want to watch. Um, and I think there's an amazing lesson in there for teachers and students, which is that uh, you do need to take a lot of care and effort into how you approach things, whether it's teachers planning lessons or, or differentiating for their students. And then for students uh, to take care in how, uh, how they're forming their projects and, and uh, you know, again, like those authentic kind of projects and tasks that they're, that they're given. Uh, man, I, I wish I remember what, hang on, let me, I'm still looking for it. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find it. I'm determined. But um, anyway, so I was watching this video and here was this, I don't think she would, uh, she would probably say the same thing about herself, like very dry humor, uh, almost boring. And, and I think that's how she kind of brands herself and, and why actually she's very entertaining to watch. Um, but she, one of the first big videos she made was... Uh, a video of her moving from one location to another, one city to another. And I don't think it was even a great video, but uh, she talked about every little edit she made, how she uh, created the most perfect um, thumbnail image. So like the, fir the very first thing you see, she talked about exactly um, how calculated she was with the first five to 10 minute or 10 seconds of the video, like a hook, right? When you, when students are writing something or presenting something, that, that engagement, that, that way of hooking in their, their audience. Uh, so I was, I was thinking to myself, like, that's it. Like, this is what teaching and learning should be. And, it, and it's not so much about how to monetize your YouTube channel, but how to, engage people, right? How to entertain people, but really how to, how to engage them, how to captivate them. And what you just described was an entire unit of narrative writing. Don't need to write about small moments anymore with the pen and paper or computer keyboard. We can just do a YouTube video for 30 seconds, one minute that is storyboarded. We think about the, you know, the, the shots, the narrative, the story we're trying to tell, getting the, 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 the viewer emotionally involved. That's all what narrative creation is, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't that be a wonderful literacy unit just to have them do a YouTube channel for, for six to eight weeks? And then you could probably take off so many of your, of your standards when it comes to, to narrative writing or narrative creation, because you shouldn't just be writing. Yeah, I mean, That'd be great. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm a very positive person. And you know, we've already talked about how much I am into growth mindset. I don't, again, realist, the, the realist in me, I don't, I don't know that a lot of teachers are there yet. I don't think a lot of teachers are going to say, you know what? Don't think making YouTube videos is really going to fit into the curriculum here. But, but I, I would dare say that they're wrong. Now I did find that uh, YouTube channel. So, uh, the woman's name is Kelly Stamps, like the stamps you would put on a on an envelope. Currently sitting at four hundred and twenty thousand subscribers, and the video that hooked me was uh, something about basically how she went 
from having zero YouTube subscribers to, uh, to, to being fully monetized. And, and uh, it was within a matter of like six months too. So she really did, her channel really did blow up and, and she really, um, you know, she really became successful quickly. But yeah, that, that just really, when I watched it today, or yesterday, I forget when I saw it. I was, I was really like, man, I don't live in that YouTube world, but it's starting to make a lot of sense to me. Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating, and I'm going to try to, um, I'm going to try to do that unit somehow, figure it out. Uh, I think, I think there's a lot of learning there, and and you talk about a way to get kids excited, and and really connecting to to what it is, and and it doesn't get more authentic than doing a, your own YouTube channel, as you said. And so, so see what we can do with that. Yeah, you know, I just thinking outside the box. But again, I I just want teachers to understand or or any educator to understand that that they you know, I, I that kind of just came to me and and if if you or anyone else can take that idea and run with it, awesome. Um but that just kind of it just kind of came to me. Uh but I I think if you asked if you asked almost any student probably between the ages of like six or seven and all the way up, they're dying to do YouTube videos, you know, but, but that's what I mean. Like let's, let's have the students lead and, and let's maybe try and adapt our teaching to their interests a little bit more. Right. Well, listen, listen, Dan, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to, to talk with us and to, to share your thoughts. It's been really, uh, really thought provoking. And, um, and, and, and I hope that our, our listeners got as much as, as I did. Um, thank you. I, I do want to open up and, and say, uh, let you say any last words and, and specifically maybe tell us a little bit uh, again about your, your podcast, about your, your new monthly podcast, uh, so that you can plug a little bit some, uh, some of the great stuff that you're doing. Appreciate that very much. And I appreciate you having me on and uh, that we were able to connect like this. Um, again, Dr. Dan Krinus, uh, I can be found just about everywhere on social media. Uh, Dr. underscore Krinus is spelled K-R-E-I-N-E-S-S. Uh, my podcast, uh, actually the, the website is leaderoflearning.com. The podcast has the same name. So the Leader of Learning podcast, uh, w- what I'm doing now is coming out with two interview style episodes per month. They release on the 5th and 25th of the month. And then sandwiched in between there is now this new monthly series that I'm calling Devil's Advocate. Uh, my co-host and I, Rochelle Dene Poth, who if, if people out there don't know her, I always say she's the hardest working woman in, in education. And, and that's across the, the whole entire world. Uh, she's, she's everywhere. She's, she's written books. She's a speaker, uh, a presenter, a a blogger. She writes like crazy, Uh, but she's great. And and we come together once a month and and we're starting to tackle trending topics. Last month, it was all about school reopening because really that was the trendiest trending topic there was. Uh, This coming month in September, our topic is going to be about uh, educational technology. And what we try and do is tackle these topics, not just with our own thoughts and feelings, but to really back up what we have to say with relevant research and uh, some statistics and, and not, I'm not trying to force like, uh, you know, this, this awkward science uh, on, onto everybody. It's more or less about not being uh, someone in, in education who kind of just 
stands up there and says, you need to do this because I say so. It's not really about what I say or what Rochelle says. It's about like what research says. And, and what we try and do is, you know, the, the reason I call the show Devil's Advocate is, is to try and understand that there are many sides to an issue. Uh, and, and there's one side and then someone's going to play devil's advocate and, and try and come at it from another side. So, so really trying to, um, to do justice to all angles and, and all viewpoints and vantage points. Uh, so leader of learning and then the devil's advocate series is, is a show within a show. So once you subscribe to one, you're subscribed to the other and, uh, just having a lot of fun with it, you know, and, and, and I love creating this content and I love trying to impact more and more educators, uh, not just in my building, not just in my state or even my country, but, but everywhere. And, and so opportunities like this one that you're giving me are, are awesome. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, just like, like I always say uh, on the podcast, just, you know, trying to inspire that, that transformation and, and, uh, hopefully get people to understand their role as a leader among what's happening out there. Well, listen, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. And uh, we'll be listening uh, to Leader of Learning. You got a listener in Thailand, so put that little flag on your map. And, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully speak again soon. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. And I'd like to thank Dr. Dan Krinas and his Leader of Learning Podcast for being a guest on the show. I'd like to thank you, the listener, for being patient with us and the audio quality. And we will see you very soon with another episode of the Meaningful Learning Podcast. And in the meantime, you can read some of the thought pieces that Charlotte and I have written on our site, www.coconut-thinking.design, where we discuss all aspects of pedagogy, curricular innovation, leadership, and other matters that that are important to us and and our lives and and hopefully resonate with you or at least uh, get the discussion going. So this has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. We will sign off and until next time.